Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with all of you today and sharing just a little bit about a very thought-provoking topic, but uh, I think we will keep each other in a good place as we think through some of these thoughts that I bring to you today. In 2007, Ray Davis of the Kinks released a song on his Working Man's Cafe album entitled Hymn for a New Age. And in that song, he called for people to rewrite the book on a fresh page. That's not a bad call to action, considering our world needs some revitalization and re-imaging of what we are doing and where we are headed. Certainly true in 2007, even more true in 2019. The name of Carolyn Winfrey Gillette may or may not be familiar to you, but she has written over 300 new hymns, many of them new words to traditional tunes, which she knows will help us to learn them easier. Many of her hymns are on the topic of gun violence, inspired by the United Nations International Day of Peace, inspired when George Zimmerman was acquitted for killing Trayvon Martin, inspired after the shooting of the nine people at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church, inspired after the mass killing of the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. Here are the words to a hymn she wrote called, If We Just Talk About Thoughts and Prayers. If we just talk about thoughts and prayers, we don't live out a faith that dares. And don't take on the ways of death, our thoughts and prayers are fleeting breath. If we just dream of what could be and do not build community, and do not seek to change our ways, our dreams of change are false displays. If we just sit, uh, excuse me, if we just sing of doing good and don't walk through our neighborhood, to learn its hope, to ease its pain, to our talk of good is simply vain. God, may our prayers and dreams and songs lead to a faith that takes on wrongs, that works for peace and justice too, and then our prayers will bring joy to you. In many ways, this is indeed a hymn for a new age. Mass shootings are the most obvious and wide-ranging examples of gun violence in our world. They get the most coverage on the media. And yet, believe it or not, when you break down the numbers, they comprise only a tiny fraction of those whose lives are taken by gun violence as a whole. Currently, the number is somewhere around 38,000 lives each year in this country. Of those deaths, the highest percentage is suicide, comprising about 62% of the total. This then is followed by homicides, then mass shootings, then accidents, usually at home, and then self-defense, which makes up less than 1% of all gun-related deaths. And yet that is one of the arguments for why we need such proliferation. Now, when a mass shooting happens, usually the following occurs in pretty much this order. The NRA is quiet. Politicians and some preachers tell us now is not the time to talk about guns. 
It is time to let the families grieve. There are suggestions for moments of silence, donation of blood, thoughts and prayers, and yes, rhetoric about outlawing military-grade weapons. Now, individually, those are not necessarily bad thoughts, bad suggestions. But if they're used all the time, every time the tragedy of many, many lives are taken, they begin to sound banal and not sincere. And then the incident passes, very little is done, and then lo and behold, we hear about another example in the news of tragedy and death. Now, I'm going to share with you some statements that people make in discussions relative to this topic. Uh, Some people, I'm not even going to give it a pejorative title because I want us to sort of think about these, perhaps, and we don't have the time to go into a lot of detail, but it might be something that would help you and your family and your friends and your circles to discuss going forward in the future. Gun ownership is our right under the Second Amendment. Although, if you look at the Second Amendment really closely, it talks about a well-regulated militia, unquote. Which at least implies Congress could not legislate a state's right to self-defense. Although, recent, more recently, in the District of Columbia versus Heller, the court suggested that the U.S. Constitution would not disallow regulations prohibiting criminals and the mentally ill from firearm possession. So we need to dig into that that argument, that statement, and decide, is it true? Does it hold? Are there other aspects of it? Here's another one. The slippery slope theory. If we allow the government to limit the type of guns guns that we own, they will eventually take all of our guns. In some cases, policy change anticipates legislation, but unfortunately, many of the legislation that we we desire and seek never takes place. That's a theory. Is it true? Can it be proven? Guns don't kill people. People kill people. Let's apply this argument to the proliferation of nuclear weapons. Yeah, it, it, it sounds rather silly, doesn't it, when you look at it that way. It is a means of mass destruction. Certainly baseball bats and knives may be used to kill, but not with the same results that happened in Las Vegas and Auckland. People may commit suicide in many ways, but when a gun is available, the chances of recovery or the chances of second thoughts are reduced to almost nothing. And then the last statement is, it is a mental health issue. And so we need to have greater legislation for limiting ownership and availability for those who are suffering with mental health issues. And certainly this is true. One can argue that anyone that takes a life through violence in some way is not exactly thinking correctly. But unfortunately, the truth is that often it is the mentally ill who are the recipients of gun violence more often than being the perpetrators. Recently, a man suffering from psychiatric problems opened fire at the Fort Lauderdale International Airport. Broward County Sheriff Scott Israel told reporters, 
People who are suffering from mental illness should not be allowed, in my opinion, to purchase or have firearms at any time. Enough is enough. However, under both federal and state law, the Fort Lauderdale airport shooter could have and should have been prohibited from purchasing firearms. The problem was not the adequate lack of laws, but utilization of those laws. And then, good persons are needed to combat those who are not so good who possess guns. So a good person with a gun is, is, a, is an advantage, is a plus, over the, over the person who, who has the wrong intentions. But how could we tell the difference? How can we tell the difference at first glance? And how does even a few good armed individuals with a handgun combat a mass shooting situation? Although we have seen examples of bravery, sometimes not even using a gun. But this also affects the issue of domestic violence. Many times women who are abused fear for their lives. They may purchase a gun in order to protect themselves. But women in these situations are five times more likely to be killed when a gun is involved because that gun can be turned on them. So certainly what we need to do as informed individuals in our world is to look at some of the statements that are given and examine them and, and analyze them and think them through. But what do we do? I'm not here today to talk about all the bad news. There is some good news here. And I'd like to share with you a passage from the Hebraic tradition taken from the book of Isaiah, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And this is my own translation of that passage. This is what Isaiah ben Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of Hashem's temple will be established as the most important mountain and raised above all other hills and all nations will stream toward it. Many will come and say, Come, let us climb Hashem's mountain to the temple of God of Jacob, that we may be instructed in God's ways and walk in God's paths. Torah will be given from Zion and the word of Hashem from Jerusalem. God will arbitrate between the nations and render decisions for many countries. They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning hooks, one nation will not rise, will not raise the sword against another, and never again will they train for war. Now we hear that, and we read it, and we may think, oh, that sounds so good. That's so inspiring. That's so wonderful. But maybe like a resounding chorus in our minds comes the question, this sounds great, but is it even realistic or possible. The prophet was foreseeing a day in which all of this would take place in some future undetermined point. Could it be possible that we could be working toward that time today? Very recently, just in the last two weeks, a new book by Shane Claiborne and Michael Martin just came off the press entitled Beating Guns, Hope for People Who Are Weary of Violence, 
I just completed that this week. It's a good read. I recommend it to you. They come up with a number of practical, feet-on-the-street type of suggestions. For example, they encourage us to avoid violent thinking. And part of that may limit the use of violent video games. More than 25 billion hours have been logged onto the video game Call of Duty. So the point there is that for many people, we learn to shoot virtual guns before we learn, learn to shoot the real ones. And one makes the other much easier to do. We need to limit the number of handguns that can be bought individually in a year. We need to require licensing, registration, and waiting periods for background checks and cooling off periods. And we need to include that for gun shows as well. Eliminate the loopholes. We need to ban semi-automatic assault weapons, armor-piercing pier ammunition, and high-capacity cartridges. Who needs that? We need to raise the legal limit to 21. And we need to possibly look into something called smart guns. Now, smart guns are something designed along the line of your cell phones that you have the fingerprint reader. And only the owner of the gun can release use of the gun because their fingerprint is locked into access to that weapon. And if that technology is no better than the technology on my cell phone, even as the owner of my cell phone, it takes five or six attempts to get my phone to unlock. Maybe some of you can <laughs> recognize the same, same kind of thing happen. But, but the best thing that these two authors come up with is they talk about repurposing weapons into gardening tools musical instruments, and in the book they have pictures of guitars that have been made from weapons, and also works of art where, in, in many cases, they make a certain number of a piece, an art, artistic piece, and one of those goes to the family of the victim of, of that violence where the weapon was used. Repurposing weapons. What a wonderful idea. Could it be that something like that could fulfill the mandate to beat our swords into plows and our spears into pruning hooks? Again, the chorus from us comes back resounding. This sounds great, but is it even realistic or possible? Between 19, October 1996 and September 1997, Australia responded to its own gun violence problem by collecting 650,000 privately held guns. It was one of the largest mandatory gun buyback programs in recent history. This was in response to the mass shooting in Port Arthur, where 35 people were killed and another 28 were wounded. Among other things, Australia introduced a mandatory buyback where recently declared illegal guns would be confiscated and in return the guns owners were paid a fair price for their weapons based on market value. Just this last week, and on April 4th, in the spirit of Claiborne and Martin's book, 
Australia criminalized failure to remove violent content from Internet sites. Sounds great, but can it happen here? Recently, Pittsburgh City Council approved restrictions on the use of some assault weapons and ammunition, passing bills restricting semi-automatic weapons such as the Colt AR-15, which was used at the Tree of Life Synagogue. City residents who already own such guns would be allowed to keep them, but ammunition and gun accessories would be banned. Additionally, firearms could be taken away from people judged to be a risk to themselves or others. Do we have all the answers? Can we form ultimate decisions? No, but we can make a start. Perhaps, just perhaps, instead of offering thoughts and prayers, we can affirm the following that was resolved among Unitarian Universalists in 2014, entitled Action of Immediate Witness. And let me share some of that with you in closing. Because Unitarian Universalists affirm the inherent worth and dignity of each person and unshakable conviction calling us to respect ourselves and others. Because Unitarian Universalists affirm justice, equity, and compassion in human relations, pointing us toward the larger community and a collective responsibility for one another. Because Unitarian Universalists are committed to the right of conscience in the use of democratic process within our congregations and in the society at large. And whereas we have viewed and witnessed recent mass tragedies, such as the Tennessee Valley Unitarian Universalist Church, whereas recent resolutions and statements of conscience will hopefully inspire other congregations to emulate our example, initiating a wave of calls to action spreading across the Unitarian Universalist world. Whereas the scourge of gun deaths in the U.S. continues, reaching levels where no one is immune to one of America's greatest public health epidemics. Whereas national polls repeatedly validate that the vast majority of citizens including individual members of the NRA, want sensible legislation requiring expanded background checks, restricting availability of certain firearms and large capacity ammunition to people with documented impairments of judgment and antisocial behavior. Whereas it is regrettably clear that the federal and state legislatures have so far found insufficient citizen support to offset the divisive leverage of the NRA and even more violent opposition forces to such legislation. And whereas while the public may assume that advancing gun violence prevention initiatives is futile, that will only be the case if we fail to persist. And whereas public advocacy for social conscious change is most successful when it is based on solid evidence and grounded in faith, community principles, and commitment, whereas Unitarian Universalist congregations and affiliates and community resources experienced with both the process and content of developing gun violence prevention commitment resolutions stand ready to assist and guide congregations in undertaking this worthy and much needed statement of commitment. We resolve to say, not one more. May it ever be so. Namaste.